I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we are coming to you from the Kodo at the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for March 6, 2009, where we talk about the possibility of a postmodern Jodo Shinshu. So this is an idea uh, that I came up with a few months ago, and fortunately I emailed you, Scott, so that I wouldn't forget. Uh, and you emailed it back to me, and I thought, oh, okay, let's do that. So today we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, I guess we could call it postmodern Shinshu, or you know, the possibility of a postmodern Shinshu. Uh, but of course, uh, that does require that we look at this word that it maybe is kind of I don't know. I don't hear it used that much today, but I'm not in school anymore. Yeah. Uh, the idea of postmodernity or postmodernism or the postmodern. Um, right. Yeah. Do it you seems, still hear it? You're you're still in Well, I'm I'm in it. Yeah. I, I love talking about this stuff. But then again, I get paid to talk about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Um, but I, I hear people talk about postmodernism every once in a while. Okay. In random pop culture references. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like the kind of thing that people don't know exactly what it means yeah and it was really popular like in what the late 80s early 90s yeah and i didn't know what people were talking about i was in undergrad then but i had friends in philosophy and everything and you know oh that's so pomo or whatever you know and you're just kind of like okay whatever i don't know what you're talking about but then when i went to gtu um and ibs uh i was able to kind of encounter it and get into it a little bit more deeply and thinking back now there are some really interesting ideas uh that maybe can give us a different perspective on Buddhism, on right. um, the Buddhism that we're practicing now in the 21st century. And I think it can help illuminate a lot of social issues in the world and why there's tension between different parts of the world, mm-hmm. actually, because of the postmodern crisis. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 that it does have bearing on the world as right. well. Yeah. So even if you don't know about postmodernism or don't care about postmodernity, you're affected by it. Uh-huh. Tough. Tough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to listen to us. <laughs> We are here to help. <laughs> so, so I guess where we have to start, though, is to uh, begin with a little bit of discussion of what postmodernity is, mm-hmm. or the postmodern. Um, I mean, in one sense, it's temporal; it's after modernity, right? So, what's that modernity? Really help us. Yeah, 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 what's well, modernity? But anyway, yeah, I'm not sure what that is either. So, <laughs> <laughs> I can help. Okay. <laughs> Well, modernity in philosophy goes starts with Descartes, uh-huh. um, which was I don't know when the 1600s or something. Is Hegel in there too? Hegel's late modernity. Okay, um, but it's this basic. It has a lot to do with European progressive ideas of history, where uh, where you know you know Hegel's idea is that that all civilization is progressing toward this sort of eventual perfection, but of course. You know, these are Europeans saying that European represents the most advanced, most progressed people on the earth, and then they can rank Africans or Asians or whatever. Right, right. as earlier yeah. and lower, therefore yeah. lower. Right. So there are some problems, as you can right, see. Right, right, right. Interesting. Right. And another interesting thing is that um, modernity, the modern, um, early disco- European discovery of Buddhism was very much influenced by these views of modernity yeah, too, absolutely. and coming out of the primitive and um, out of this kind of 
idealized and yet inferior. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But there's a part of this too. I think that we have to recognize that there's a sort of implicit valuing. Yes. Going on in modernity where we're saying that some cultures are better than other cultures or they're more advanced or they're more civilized or whatever, which is a basic value judgment mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. that, you know, these cultures are not as good as some other culture mm-hmm. and that, Values and morals and whatnot, therefore, are not relative, but they're very universal. So part of modernity has to do with the universalization of knowledge, meaning that everybody basically believes the same thing. You can know the world through um, science. And here I don't mean like actual science. I mean sort of quasi-European science that doesn't make a lot of sense. Social science. <laughs> well, I also like uh, 18th century and even 19th century quack science like phrenology or um, you know other sort of you know weird scientific theories people had about the development of human beings and saying that you know africans were closer to earlier humans and therefore inferior to europeans who were more evolved and measure the skull size and right and all that so when i say science i don't mean (laughs) right right got it got it i don't mean you know the science that gives us apples and ipods and (laughs) all the good stuff we know and love i mean weird stuff that was used to justify slavery right Got it. Um, so anyway, but it's this universalization of knowledge and that values are universal and that worth is sort of going to be sort of known uh, abstractly or objectively. And so maybe now would be a good time to introduce this idea of the meta narrative. Right. Where it's like Hegel saying that uh, history has been this um, progressive progression of ideas and technology and all that stuff. But there's a definite arc. This is definitely a single narrative. Mm-hmm. It's not like all these little cultures have their own narratives. It's like this is the meta narrative of the spirit manifesting uh, in the world. And we're um, constantly moving closer and closer to that, implying that we now are, speaking from Hegel's perspective, are at the pinnacle right. so far. We're the furthest along. All those other people are inferior and um, less advanced. Right. And even 19th century detractors who rejected these ideas still used them. And the perfect example is Marx. Mm-hmm. Marx rejected meta narratives, or not, well, he didn't actually reject meta narratives, but um, he rejected the idea that capitalism in the Western European world was the pinnacle of society. And he envisioned a communist communal utopia that would happen in the future. Right. But even that is a meta narrative that eventually the Western capitalist society will break down and in its place progressively in history will be this, you know, communal utopia that we have yet to see. Wow. Yeah. 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 So postmodernity is a rejection. It was first of all, a rejection of all that. Mm -hmm. It rejects the meta narrative. It rejects the idea that values or norms are universal and reifies the particulars and says that values are actually very relative Mm -hmm. and that what is good and value and right and and right or wrong in, in one particular culture or time and place is not necessarily what is good or bad or right or wrong or of value in some other particular cultural time and place. For starters. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some people, that's very frightening. And this idea yeah. of absolute relativism, right, seems to level the playing field to where there's, you can't say anything about anything, and that, like, morality or ethics are completely relative, and therefore, okay, so what? So then, Should where do the we quote? go from there? Yeah, let's... Um, so I have um, a book that I'm using in a class right now. It's called Religion and Globalization um, by a few different people. 
we'll post a link on the website. Um, But uh, in the introduction, they talk about postmodernism. And they say postmodernism is a philosophy or ideology that affirms, among other things, that pluralism and relativism are good. They are good because they undermine the totalism or totalitarian authoritarianism of both traditional and modernist societies. And as Harry was saying, this is the important part, the unfolding conundrum among the world's religions in an age of globalization is whether living in a postmodern society, one should reject or embrace postmodernism. The question is whether to reject the changes brought about by globalization and return to one's traditional sacred life as fundamentalists argue, or to return or to embrace postmodern pluralism as good and somehow compatible with one's sacred way of life. So what you were hinting at, I think, is this idea that if all values are relative and anything could be true, then how do we deal with these multiple competing meta narratives? Mm-hmm. How do we can deal with this competing worldviews? And traditionalists and fundamentalists will say, you know, let's go back to the basics. Let's become fundamentalist Christians or Muslims or Buddhists or whatever. And this is what's true. But if we hold on to this thing, like this is our last stand, <laughs> you know, this will be true and we'll can, you know, then this will explain the world. And if everybody just believed us, then we fine. There'd be no conflict. This may be a little bit off track, but so I, one thing that I think is that the idea of the meta narrative is actually very comforting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it explains right. everything. Yeah, because you've had it explained for you. You don't have to face the possibility that maybe we can both be right, you know, or that, you know, maybe um, it's not as simple and black and white uh, as we thought. And, um, and I wonder maybe if, like, soap operas, in a way, oh, are yeah. one manifestation of this comfort where um, being able to um, take part or at least um, be, you know, engage in this story that's just continuing ongoing, you know the characters, you've met right. the characters, you know the backstories. Yeah, those things go on for 20 years, yeah, 30 yeah, years. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but even something like Star Trek is another one, mm-hmm. a very interesting meta narrative that is not without its problems, and yet it posits a, a, um, a possibility of a world where um, we've gone beyond commerce and where there's the possibility of, of um It's diversity. a community utopia. Yeah. It's, um, a, it's very Marxian. I think also stuff like The Grateful Dead, were very interesting and in that they provided a kind of meta narrative that was beyond just like the the words of the songs and became this community of deadheads right where the deadheads the the fans of the group were part of the meta narrative they were creating it as they were going right. along and i think that was part of the allure and then it gives it gives your life purpose and meaning mm-hmm. the problem it is what happens when the main band guy dies and then the band breaks up <laughs> Then you're stuck in the postmodern modern conundrum. Yeah, and then you're going to find a new band to follow. <laughs> or take the lessons you've learned. Finding a new band to follow is not facing up to the conundrum, I think. Right. Finding a way to incorporate what you've learned from that experience and yet then go out and engage the frightening world um, would be facing the conundrum, I think, and, and um, uh, being maybe more uh, positive about that. Yeah. So that was my little, sorry, this, um, even Dungeons and Dragons, right, is another meta-narrative in a way where I can escape from the, the, the um, uncertainty of the real world and be able to jump into this fantasy reality where, where there is a narrative and I have a character that's progressing, right? You have an interesting mix of uh, influences <laughs> <laughs> in your own postmodern <laughs> conundrum. Which do you choose, Star <laughs> Trek or Grateful Dead? <laughs> but Grateful I, Trek. <laughs> We'll make a new meta narrative, <laughs> but these, but this is all very these are all 
that's all very those are all very good points because it's very true that part of the postmodern conundrum is that we have all these different competing narrative narratives and each one explains the world in different ways mm-hmm. and each one claims to have something of value or truth to it and yet oftentimes they conflict uh-huh uh-huh. And they're and, completely yeah. at odds with one another. Right. You know, I mean, uh, part of the reason I was joking because to me, the deadheads I've known were very much not interested in Dungeons and Dragons. They oh, really? Like two very different worlds, uh-huh, uh-huh. right? And they and they are in a way, right? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people who would spend most of their lives playing Dungeons and Dragons might not travel the country following the dead, right? <laughs> Those are two different ways of viewing the world. Mm-hmm. So. But if you know, we can extend that metaphor to different religious traditions, or even different religious traditions within a single religion, mm-hmm. um, then you see the problem. You know, how do you reconcile the fact that this particular religion has fourteen different ways to explain the world, right, right, right. and each one claims to be true? And I guess that's a big step too from uh, a story, a fictional story, um, or you know, a band or, or something that has. Um, some kind of backstory to it, but it's not telling you why the world is the way it is. It's not telling you why people act the way they do. Uh, or directing right. you how to live your life on a daily basis. Right, telling you how to live, right. Um, whereas religions very often more so do that, right? Religion is not claiming to be just a story, just a, to, to, uh, an escape from reality, right? right? It's saying, no, we know what reality really is, <laughs> right? We know the, the reason things are the way they are. Uh, and so the meta narratives there, you can, I think the, the game gets more serious yeah, in a way that yeah. it's not a game anymore. It's life. Right. And so. Should we be the heretic quote? Um, okay. Well, let's, let's hold off on that for a second. All right. Um, let's move it on to Buddhism. I want to get to that, but, okay. um, the, the thing that interested me, I think was, so during, when I was at GTU in the late nineties or whatever, I took classes on, um, you know, postmodern theory and, and, um, you know, all these kind of people and read some of the books and a lot of it went over my head, but I got some of it. And this idea of questioning the meta narrative, right? Uh, casting off these, these overarching meta narratives that, that are absolute value for everything, uh, seemed like, okay, wow, okay, meta narrative's bad. Right? <laughs> but then as a Buddhist, can I do that? Would I want to do that? Is that something I should do to, uh, reject the idea of meta narrative because Buddhism has at least one meta narrative mm-hmm. and like as you pointed out as we get into uh, the diversity of Buddhisms there are actually many 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 meta narratives right uh, and so uh, we have to be careful to just you know I, I think very few people are going to say yes no more meta narratives for me kind of thing but I think it's is actually maybe helpful and useful to examine a Buddhism, the right. Jodo Shinshu Buddhism, see religion in America, whatever, all these different religions from the point of view of this idea of meta narrative. Yeah. Cause I think there's definitely meta narratives that we implicitly accept mm-hmm. and operate under in our own particular Buddhist practice mm-hmm. and even new ones that are not attached to a particular school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a, to jump ahead and maybe a little bit, but there's mm-hmm. certainly a, it seems to me there's a new, emerging maybe meta narrative about Buddhism that um, many people, particularly in America, see the Buddha not as 
having any magical miracle sort of powers, but as a very human person. Mm-hmm. And they use often they use science to rationalize Buddhism. So there's this whole rational Buddhism right, right, right. that's happening, right? And the sort of like downplaying of the more religious aspects of Buddhism or the supernatural aspects of Buddhism, right? So that's one sort of narrative. It's something that we sort of assume, right? That Buddhism is this thing that you do. You meditate and you become something, right? you don't have to believe anything. No one's telling you what to believe. Right. And that's all part of the narrative. And that you can see the roots of that in the European encounter with Buddhism yeah, absolutely. What, 400 years ago. Or whatever, Which is a whole other ago. podcast. Right. <laughs> but I think that's, that's one of the important things here to do is to recognize how narratives inform the way we understand the world, even if we reject them or even if we don't mm-hmm. know that they exist. Mm-hmm. And even if they're not attached to a particular religious tradition, I think you could find that narrative of a rational scientific Buddhism in many different kinds of American Zen or the Shambhala uh, movement or even Jodo Shinshu, I mean, mm-hmm. it's prevalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so maybe rejecting meta narratives isn't the the conclusion, but to be aware of the meta narratives right. and to then um, ask questions about, well, then how do we deal with this? Which is maybe um, often not done mm-hmm. in various religious traditions. We just assume that no, we have a meta narrative and it's right. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. and you know. I, and in, in some meta-narratives work, and I think some meta-narratives work better than others. And some of them, I think, particularly the um, the rational scientific Buddhism meta-narrative, I think helps reconcile Buddhism as a religion with non-religious secular American society. Mm-hmm. So it has a sort of purpose because people can you know, claim to be both Buddhist and secular humanist or Buddhist and scientific and, and sort of merge those two and rationalize the two together, which is fine and more power to you. I mean, Lord knows I do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um, but to look at these other narratives and, and see where they come from and I, and to get back to the particular um, Buddhist sectarian meta narratives help illustrate how there's many different ways of looking at Buddhism, which yeah. I think is where we were originally headed well should we look at a couple of these meta narratives yeah. i guess um and i think the first one that you see is the life of shakyamuni and that that uh is what many would people would if you said does buddhism have this like single story and people would say yeah shakyamuni mm-hmm. and it's true the life story of shakyamuni um has been uh huge in so many different types of buddhism uh, and it's through that that you can um, see the truths of buddhism illustrated Right? It's through that that you can see uh, the choices that Siddhartha Gautama made. Uh, it's through that that you can see the uh, truths that he awakened to and then how he put that into practice and how he taught that. Uh, but, oh, do you want to stay there for a while? Yeah, well, I think that that's a very good, interesting narrative about the narrative, the narrative of the historical life of the Buddha and how that can relate to our own particular lives today and, and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's interesting because that's one narrative out of one particular Buddhist tradition. And there's a sort of competing narrative historically that goes along with that that says, you know, yeah, the life of the Buddha is very important, but so are his past lives. Mm -hmm. It would actually shift the beginning of that narrative to the previous incarnations of the Buddha. And that's a narrative that was told to lay people in, you know, pre-modern Asia as a way of saying, you know, Part of being a Buddhist is doing all this meritorious work so that eventually, after many lifetimes, you can become a person who can work toward enlightenment in this life and become enlightened. So that's a different take on that narrative. I think that that narrative 
has been shifted, right? Like Mm -hmm. originally that narrative of the life of the Buddha was not just this life, but thousands of previous lives. Mm -hmm. And now we've shifted that narrative to just Siddhartha Gautama. Well, and part of the, um, part of those birth stories, the Mm -hmm. Jataka tales or whatever, are very ethical. Right. Right. And they're used, these very interesting, entertaining tales of the Buddha as a rabbit or as a um, mendicant or all these different lives that he had before he was born as Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, but they're often, if not always, I'm not sure, I won't say always, but to prove an ethical point, to illustrate right. what um, the compassion of the Buddha or uh, his equanimity or whatever, all these positive aspects of the Buddha, and to uh, illustrate that with the with the um, addition that you should try to do this too. Right. This is that's, good. That's what narratives do. Narratives yeah. explain the world and how you live your life in it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So I don't, yeah, we don't, um, but the problem with those birth stories is that A, they require the belief in reincarnation or mm-hmm. at least tacit acceptance. Yeah. And uh, maybe, yeah, in the 20th century America, I'm not going to go into the 21st century, just 20th century America, looking at BCA anyway, uh, there was a, a to me, a de- deliberate re- uh, uh, rejection of reincarnation. And you don't see the Jataka tales that much in BCA. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about those birth stories that much. Um, maybe because of that. And so that's another meta. We've, we can't accept all aspects of this Buddha story. Right. And because we're in our current meta narrative of 20th century American culture, science, rationality. Um, right. Yeah. So we're only going to accept the part that seems historically accurate mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. provable or something. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Meta narrative. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And meta narrative, it seems like that there could be only one, but how could there be only one? Right? It's like it it if we really look, I think we would see many, many, many competing meta narratives even um within people in modernity. But, but yeah. yeah. The idea is to that um to recognize these and then maybe question them or yeah. or, or just be critical in a positive way and so another way that we can see a, a, a shift in uh, the the uh, multiplication of narratives in Buddhism is well then what happened after he died, mm. right? The Buddha dies. That's part of the story, and then uh, one and version. What does that mean? Right. Does that mean he's gone now? He's completely beyond our access. We can't have anything to do with him anymore because he's completely left the world, and so therefore now we have the Dharma and the Sangha. And so from here on out, it's just Dharma and Sangha, no more Buddha except for the stories about him and the teachings that he gave, right? And so I think that is one thing that happened for, for some people, mm-hmm. but that's not what everybody did. And one thing that we see is the development of Mahayana Buddhism, uh, assuming a meta-narrative that that wasn't there from the beginning. <laughs> right, but, but also, I mean, one of the interesting things to me about Mahayana and later Buddhism is that it's it's completely postmodern. I mean, talk mm-hmm. about multiple meta narratives. Oh, I mean, wow. to me, it seems like every particular Mahayana sutra has its own sort of meta narrative, its own sort of take on the world. You know, you look at the Vimalakirti Sutra, which is all about you know this world is uh, an illusion and it already is a resplendent pure land, and you can have this even if you're a lay person. You know that, even, that sort of narrative, even um, emptiness, yeah, very right. emptiness related. And- Versus the you know the flower adornment sutra, which is thousands of pages long, and it's about this very long, complicated process of working toward enlightenment as an individual. You know, I mean, like each one has its own sort of take on the proper Buddhist path or 
understanding of Buddhahood and because it opens up the possibility of multiple Buddhas or Bodhisattvas, it just gets even more complicated. Right, 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 right. But isn't that kind of the beauty of Buddhism too? Yes. (laughs) Although there, of course, even with, I mean, and that's interesting too, because that's what happened. China gets faced with, right? In India, it's developing naturally. And then it seems like at a certain point in time, it very quickly gets introduced into China, but they get introduced all these different kinds. Yeah, they get a whole introduced lot of them. <laughs> the mainstream non-Mahayana stuff. They introduce all this different Mahayana stuff so that you get people like Tian Juri, Tian Tai Juri and um, the Flower Garland School yeah. ranking them, creating right. new meta narratives. Right. And that's where they've exactly, chosen yeah, yeah, yeah. to value a certain text over others, even though they accept the other ones, but only as provisional. Right. Yeah. It's all that categorizing. That categorizing is, it absolutely is, is, a, is a narrative. It's like there's all these different ways of looking at Buddhism and they're progressively better or worse. And, you know, this is the true teaching. You know, this happens in Japan too, right? Yeah. I mean, eventually in the uh, Kamakura period in Japan when Shinran and Nichiren and uh, Dogen are running around, they're like, ah, Nichiren says the Lotus Sutra, that's the best sutra. And mm-hmm. Shinran's like, no, pure land practice. You know, these are different perspectives on Buddhism and they're each creating their own narrative about how Buddhism explains the world and how you should be a Buddhist. And I think that we're getting close to the difficulty, closer to the difficulty, because the, those Japanese schools during the Kamakura period, like Pure Land, Nichiren, Zen, uh, were very much exclusive schools. Mm-hmm. Now those weren't, the, that's not, of course, Tendai was still going, Tendai is very eclectic. Tendai maybe is very postmodern in that it accepts all these different kinds, depending on your proclivity. Right. But um, Nichiren only Lotus Sutra. Right, uh, Pure Land, Jodo Shu, and Jodo Shinshu only Nembutsu, right? Um, Dogen just sitting, right? Very much exclusive, and so I think that's the for me as a Jodo Shinshu Buddhist, that's one of the difficulties that I face now in the 21st century, in the midst of many, 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 many other Buddhists. Maybe you know, not the 20, the past 50, 100 years are like the first time in history that all these Buddhist schools have been thrown together, right. not only from one country, but from all the different countries of Asia, from all the new versions that have come out in Asia and in the West. Uh, and so now we're all stuck together. So what do we do? Right. Our differences it's, are really highlighted by the fact that we're at such close proximity. Mm-hmm. You know, people think that all Buddhists meditate and they go to a BCA temple and you're like, how come, where's the Zafu? Yeah. What's going on? (laughs) What happened? Where was the meditation? Right. So, um, yeah, uh, it's interesting because in Japan, uh, there was conflict between the different schools and like Tendai didn't like Shinshu because Shinshu was saying, only Nembutsu and was um, apparently there were people not sanctioned necessarily by the leaders, but who were uh, being disrespectful at Shinto shrines and mm-hmm. disres- you know, putting down other Buddhists. So there was actually people, you know, Shinshu fundamentalists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Huh? Uh-huh. Uh, you get too attached to a meta narrative as the exclusive only way to look at the world. And that's where the fundamentalism comes in. But the thing is the texts are written that way. Yeah. If you read Shinran's writings, there are things where he's very much the one, the, the ocean of the one true Dharma of the Nembutsu and that, um, like a river um, absorbs the corpses of different, you know, different corpses come into one place or the river that all these other schools will eventually flow into Jodo Shinshu. I mean, he uses really, really, really dark. Yeah. These really, really, um, but, but to jump in with some postmodernity uh, criticism here, <laughs> one of the things postmodern and postmodern philosophy does is it says, well, you can look at these, you know, whenever you examine a text or whenever you examine a narrative, you have to put it into its particular cultural historical context. Mm-hmm. 
And we have to understand that Shinran in his particular context was writing for a particular audience and up against particular circumstances, you know. The difficulties of persecution. And, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, writing in reaction to a pre-established school or doctrine or what have you, which is very different from the context we're in now mm-hmm. where, you know, Shinshu was not really fighting against some larger overarching, you know, Buddhist hierarchy that is threatening to destroy it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, which is a whole other problem with postmodernity is like, well, now what? You know, if that sort of context that Shinran was in is no longer applicable, is Shinshu still applicable? Ah, oh, interesting. deep question. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's tricky. Well, see, the continuing of the the history of Japan is it in 1600 about when we uh, have the Tokugawa period and all of a sudden there's peace. People have been fighting, fighting Shinshu, one of the main um, fighting groups, mm-hmm. and then on, the warlords finally unify Japan. One of the interesting things is that they forbade debate between Buddhist schools. <laughs> you weren't allowed to debate anymore. Now, debate is a huge part of the Buddhist tradition, right? Yeah. We can still see it in Tibet, and they have a very uh, uh, ritualized kind of form of debate, and yet there is still a need to be able to hold up your end of the debate, right, and show that I know what I'm talking about. Right. But in Japan, all these exclusive schools were no longer allowed to talk to each other. Which in one way is kind of sad, but in another way was good in a way because then they didn't have to worry about defending themselves and they could delve deeply into their own issues Mm -hmm. without having to defend themselves against attacks from outside. But the thing is, that was almost 300 years. Right. And then we, you know, so I think that's in a way what BCA or Jodo Shinshu has inherited is... um, We don't have to talk to anybody. Yeah. We we can just deal with our own thing. Uh, But the problem is that... Where we, we are now is people don't care anymore. Yeah. And we haven't had to, we've had a captive audience for centuries. Mm-hmm. And now those people are just, have plugged up their ears or just don't care, don't even come right. uh, to listen. So uh, we have to get used to being back in the midst of a, wor- a very uh, uh, complex world where thing, nothing can be taken for granted and where we have to be able to show that we know what we're talking about. Right. Uh, and we also have to, uh, interact with uh, other Buddhists, other religions, uh, etc. So we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, we've kind of run out of time for this episode. And so I think that in our next one, we will uh, continue our discussion of looking at Jodo Shinshu in this uh, postmodern global 21st century context. Mm-hmm.